Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Wrestling Place Wesley Chapel. We hope you feel honored, empowered, and full of faith because of what you hear. And we would love to see you at our gathering soon. For more resources like this, head to trpfamily.org. When you think of church, what do you think of? I mean, what does church mean for you? And I guarantee if we were to do a survey and ask that question for every one of us, what does the church mean for you, we'll get different answers. I remember reading an article. Oh, there's a big echoey. Uh, read an article where uh, this young man talked about his earliest memories in Zimbabwe, going to church as a little boy. Every, mo- every Sunday, he would get dressed to go to church. He would ask his mom for a coin to put in the offering, and he would go to Sunday school. And he didn't exactly like church at that time, but he remembered his aunties who told the stories of Noah and Abraham and the stories. And he talked about how that influenced what he thought about church. Our earliest experiences, your memories, maybe your first church that you attended, shapes the what you think about church. Shapes what you think is right and wrong. Sometimes we thought that was biblical, but that was tradition. But our first impressions of church, our earliest memories, has formed in us what we think is right and wrong. And so when we go to another church and it's different, we think it's wrong, not different. In that, when people in the church fight over the differences, it's not necessarily about the differences, it's about what they think is right and wrong. And I want to bring to your attention that there are many different churches with different views and different traditions. And we have different opinions of what church is, but it's not about our opinions. It's God's opinion. He sets the standard of what is his church. And so this morning, I want us to look at biblically what church is. We've been going through the uh, sermon series on statement of faith, what we believe as the resting place church. And we've been going through the series, and it's really Christian theology, if you will, but what we believe, the deep convictions of why we have established this church, who we are in this campus, but this is pivotal for training up our next generation of our leaders of the resting place. And so this is a statement that we're going to look at on church. We believe the church is the body of Christ, empowered. We have a slide for that. We believe the church is the body of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be the representation of Jesus Christ on the earth to continue his mission. That's our statement. It's packed. I'm going to unfold what we believe from the scriptures. But that's who we are. First, I want us to just leave that up there. I want us to recognize that the church is first the body of Christ. The body of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
The word church, the very first occurrence of church in the Bible is when Jesus talked about church in Matthew 16, 18. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That word for church right there, the very word that Jesus talked about as the church, Peter, I'm going to establish my church on, on that rock. That church, the word is ecclesia. Literal translation, gathering, assembly, it is when people are gathered together. And I tell you that ecclesia, that word has been used hundreds of years before Jesus came. I want you to know that. It was used in what we now consider very secular sense. And what that word meant is when people assembled, large group of people assembled for a particular purpose or a mission or agenda. It is the membership which they say, I agree to this mission or this purpose. So if group of politicians assembled or had an assembly, that was a church. You guys with me? That's how that word is used. But let me tell you, there are churches, and then there is God's church. There is the secular church, secular assembly who do not believe in Jesus, who do not follow his word, who do not, they just carry their own agenda. But then there is the assembly, the church of Jesus Christ, who believe in his word. And that's what we're talking about. There are many churches that proclaim to be the church, but who won't and who will not submit to God's will. They are making their own agenda of what they believe church is supposed to be. But that's not who we are. It's not about our opinions. It is about what the scripture, God's word, says is true and how he has enabled and empowered the church through his Holy Spirit. I want you to know that the church was birthed with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The church was birthed when the Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came upon his people. People were transformed. They were renewed. They received the fulfillment of God's word and the promises, and the church was birthed. It was not about the human agenda of people saying, hey, I agree to you. Let's make a little club, social club. Let's meet together. Let's have a building. It was never about that. It was about the birth of Jesus Christ, and he came, and he gave his Holy Spirit as a promise. And when the people of God received that, the church was established by the birthing, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The ecclesia consists of members joining together to be the body of Christ. So what does that mean? It means that we are an organic being, not an organization. We are an organic being, the body of Christ, not an organization. You guys know the difference? Yeah. I love how Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12. And I want you to know that this is in context. Chapter 12 13 and 14, Apostle Paul is talking about the same thing regarding the spiritual things. 
He talks about the church and the body and many members, if you know that. In chapter 13, he's talking about love and the spiritual things, but he's talking about all of this as one big idea. But he talks about, and he says this in verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if you read further, I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you, but I encourage you guys to do your own study. Read. But Apostle Paul talks about how, you know, this is the many body parts saying, you know, because I'm not a hand, I can't, I'm not really part of the body. I'm not a foot. I'm not really part. And he, they think, you know, they're inferior. That one part is one in, in, inferior. And then this Holy Spirit is the empowerment. Oh, gosh. Let me read um, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. That one spirit is not an alcoholic that we drink. That one spirit is the Holy Spirit that empowered the church, that birthed the church. That one spirit is the one that came in oneness, the spirit of God that came in oneness with the church. And this is the same living water that the Samaritan woman was promised. If you drink of this, this is the same Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that came upon Jesus at the baptism on the Jordan River. This is the same uh, Spirit that enabled the believers at the Pentecost that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, like tongues of fire was upon them, and they began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is the same Spirit that flows and empowers and indwells in the church that makes the one body. Acts 2, 17 through 18 says, In the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit, that one spirit, came upon the church. And they were never the same. They were empowered. And we believe that the church is the body of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be representation of Jesus Christ on the earth to continue in his mission. And I want you to know that the body consists of many members. The body consists of not one all foot, not all one big waist. Maybe sometimes I, yeah, anyway, uh, I will refrain from my bad jokes. <laughs> I am. Body is made of many parts. Yeah. 
And each member has different functions, different roles. And that just means that when I look around the room, I love our diversity. That's one of the most beautiful things I appreciate. I love our diversity. From the mainlands to the islands, from the light to the dark, and all the different shades in between, right? But it's not just about the colors. I love our diversity because when I look at the room, I see how God has made you so unique and so different from every one of you. We're not the same, and that's a beautiful thing. And sometimes some people like all sameness. Uh, I was talking, anyways, it was, there was a conversation with pastors and how we went to a pastor's conference, and a group of pastors from one church, they were all dressed the same. Not exactly the same, but the style. Their beards, their hairstyle, they all looked the same. And we're like, oh, my gosh. Like, they're, you could tell they came from the same place. And then we joked about it, but the resting place, we were all so different. I mean, come on. You look at Caleb and me. Do we look anything alike? <laughs> I'm trying to grow out my hair, but, you know, it just doesn't work. But that's the beauty, is that God has made us very different. And I look at this room, and I see the preachers and the evangelists, leaders. God, the Lord has given you grace in such different way. You lead people, you influence people, you inspire people, but you do it all so differently. And I see the servants, those who are behind the scene. I, I see those who are giving without being seen. They're giving unto the Lord sacrificially. And I see that. And God is pleased. And I see the, the worshipers, the praise warriors, how you change the atmosphere as you honor God with your voices, with your talents. With This is all diversity and beauty of how God has made us so different. But when we are together, we are whole. We are stronger. We are better. I confess, I didn't always appreciate diversity or differences. I remember, uh, yeah, my wife laughs because I'm thinking about her. <laughs> you know, there was a time I asked the Lord, Lord, you set me up, you fixed me up with whoever you want me to marry, and I will marry her. And he set us up. We got married, and then I asked the Lord, Lord, are you sure? Because are you sure you didn't make a mistake? We're so different. But it took a couple of years before I realized the brilliance of God, that what I could not do, my wife is able to do and do it well. And what she is not, not willing to do, I do. <laughs> And I do it with it well. Notice I didn't say what she could not do is she would not do. But when we are together, wow, we make, we are so much stronger. We are so much better. And that is a church that in the diversity is strength, power, when there is oneness. I love how um, Apostle Paul talks about it in verse 21. He is like, but I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand, 
head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You guys remember about this, right? He, he gives an analogy of like different foot, or like the foot and the hands, I don't need you, as if we can live apart. And he was trying to say, we are part of the same body. But as a church, consider that. Have anyone ever rubbed you the wrong way? And you thought, let's cut them off. Let's amputate them. Because we'll be better without them. Let's be honest. How many times have we thought amputation of certain members was a better solution? But that's crazy thinking. Because how many times have we walked in the night, stumped our toe in some corner of a cabinet, mm, I can't breathe, you're angry, you're like, I want to amputate my toe because it's causing me pain. That doesn't make sense. But that's exactly what we say about members. We want to cut them off then allow healings to take place, to allow restoration and healing because that single toe brings pain to the entire body. In the same way, an artist who makes a great masterpiece, when that piece is honored, it's not the hand that is honored, it's the whole person that is honored. That's the oneness. That's the unity. That's the whole. And that is the church. The church is an assembly of the members of Christ's body. And I always want you to know that it is the new temple. It is the new temple according to the biblical text. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together, become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. I want you to kind of bring this temple account that Paul talks about. Now, before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., the temple was the dwelling place of God. But if you remember, the temple was a continuation of the tabernacle in the wilderness. So the tabernacle was a tent that was portable, and they carried it they set as they traveled into the wilderness. But it was the presence of the God's ark. You guys remember that? It was a representation of heaven on earth. So if you study deep, the tabernacle and the placements of the altar and all these things was reflection of heaven and on earth. And God was very specific about this mandate. But then David, he is in his castle. He's established his kingdom. He, he looks out the window, and he sees the tabernacle, God's ark in a tent. And he's like, I want to build him a house. God never asked for a house. God cannot be contained in a house. But as an act of worship, as his devotion, the servant says, Lord, I want to build you a house. It's like, not you, but your son. You guys remember that? So Solomon built him a temple. That, was, that would bring reverence and honor to God. But it was a place of God's dwelling. I want you to know that within that temple account, and there is this, I don't want to go into the deep teachings here, but I want you to know that the temple was big, 
But the more important things were at the center. The outer courts, Gentiles, women, servants were allowed in. That's where the money changers were. But as you get to interior courts, there was a court, like, more exclusions that only men could enter. Only Jews could enter. Only the priests could enter. The more closer you get to the center, it was the most holy place. It was the holy of holies. And what separated the holy of holies from the rest of the the temple was this big veil, the curtain. Get that? The more center, more important. Outer, less important. But it was all one temple. You guys understand me? All right. Why am I bringing this up? Because the high priest, only the high priest, once a year, could make an atonement with the sacrificial lamb, with the blood, and then once a year, it was allowed to enter into the most holy place to encounter and to hear God. You with me? When Jesus died on that cross, when Jesus gave his last breath, and he said, it is finished, miracles, supernatural things happened. You guys remember this? Darkness came, the earth shook, dead people came back to life, walked the city. Crazy things. But among the miracles was a veil, the curtain of the Holy of Holies tore into from top to bottom. I want you to know symbolically, theologically, what that means for us is that God removed that barrier of separation. That big curtain was torn and removed to say, The accessibility to get to God, the thing that separated is removed. And that veil, the symbol, was our sin. Christ paid for our sins. He removed that veil. He removed our sin chasm that separated us to God. And then he says, you are my new temple. You are my new temple. I want you to get that. You are my new dwelling place. That Ephesians 2.19, let me read it again. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners, outsiders, and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's house are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place, dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, in the New Testament, among the epistles, and this is Apostle Paul mostly, there's two words to note about the temple. Two words. There is the naos in Hebrew. Let me, somewhere in my notes here. Oh, naos and I want to say haren or here. It's Greek. It's all Greek to me. Naos or herein. Naos is the actual inner court, the important place of God's dwelling place, Naos. The outside courts, the court of Gentiles, right, where the, the trade happened, is Heron. When Paul wrote in the epistle letters, he wrote more talking about Naos, the inner courts, and only once about the outer court. And if you read the outer court, it's about servants, Okay. But here, here's how he used the inner court illustrations of the nows. Read this. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Nows, inner court. 
that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, inner court. This blows my mind. This is not just about any court or building. This is talking about the most holy place where God dwells. You guys with me? This blows my mind. First uh, Corinthians six nineteen. And do you know that that do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And there are many examples like this, where Paul talks about God dwells in you, and you are that new temple. He said, "Nows, not just any temple, but the inner court where God dwells and lives. It's the important place. You are that important place." What does that mean? The New Testament church, the body of Christ consisting of many members, empowered by his Holy Spirit, enabled, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, is the new temple. Does it blow your mind? It blows mine. We know God indwells us, but he said you are that holy of holies. You are no longer sin or sinful. You are the sanctified, the most holy place where God's presence dwells in you. Our gathering on Sunday is to host God's presence. God indwells you individually. God indwells in us corporately, collectively. He indwells us as a church, as a new temple, because it's the holy place, the dwelling place of God. We believe the church is the body of Christ, empowered in dwelling with the Holy Spirit to be the representation of Jesus Christ on the earth to continue his mission. So here's what that means. As the temple of God, as the body of Christ, as the ones empowered by his Holy Spirit, we are called to be two things, to be representation of Jesus Christ on the earth and continue his mission. To be representative of Jesus Christ on the earth and to continue his mission. When people see you, they ought to see Jesus. You are his representation. God's spirit is in you. His spirit is in you. Enables you, empowers you, changes you. You are a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, new has come. You, if you believe Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are no longer a sinner, right? You are a new creation. Royal priesthood. Children of God, heirs and co-heirs with Christ. There is so much to our identity once we believe in Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit comes upon us. Everything's changed. The problem lies when we believe of our former identity. Because we say things like, oh, nobody's perfect. And we justify that because that is who we think we are. But did you know that you are holy? What does that mean? Sometimes our old identity or old thinking comes in the way of our new person, new identity, and they've merged. And I think this is where the church has tried to give words like sanctification, that we're in a process of being sanctified to becoming more holy. But no, the holiness is once. He has justified, he has paid, and you are new. There's a greater maturity, depth to your growth, 
But you have been sanctified. That means you have been set apart. You have been made holy. Done. Our problem is when we believe in the old lie. I, I remember when I was little, my sisters used to say in this term of endearment that I was like a bear. That or they called me a bear. Actually, they called me a communist bear. <laughs> what that meant was like, it was like a bad comment. Anyways. Uh, but it was like a term of endearment because I knew they loved me, but it was like, you know, a nickname. But that bear was like, said he was like, oh, you're so naive and ignorant or dumb. That's what a bear means. But you're cuddly like a panda, you know. We love you, that type deal. But you grow up hearing this. And after a while, you start believing in this term of endearment. I, I felt loved, but I believed that I was dumb as a bear. And for some reason, I felt like the black sheep or the black bear in our family, where all my sisters were the straight-A students, and I wasn't. Because I believed in the lie. You guys with me? And so it's like, why, do, why should I study? Because it's not going to help me. I, that's how dumb I was, to actually believe in that. So I wouldn't study, and I remained dumb. It, it's, it's like catch-22. Funny thing is, not until my third year in college did I get saved. God saved me, revealed himself to me. And when I became a new believer, I knew I was different. Like, I didn't know the scripture, but I felt different. I knew I was different. Like, I didn't know the full theology, but I knew, boy, I'm not the same person. And you know what I did? I actually studied. I actually did my homework. This is third year in college, I know. This is bad, really late. And then I remember something I've never done before. I was doing an assignment for statistics class and something I didn't understand. You know what I did? I went to the professor to ask how to do it. Instead of asking my friend, hey, what's the answer so I could just copy, I asked to know how to do it. I don't understand this. And I went to the professor. He taught it. He's like, oh, yeah, I light bulb and I got the, you know, knew how to do it. And I was so proud of myself. I called my sister. Yes, sis. You know what I did today? Oh, you'd be proud of me. That I was proud of myself because I never did that all my life. I tripled my GPA that year. Yeah, it was that low in the first place. But I tripled it. Come on, this is praise God a moment, not mock my past moment, okay? <laughs> praise God, right? But even, but that was the lie that I believed. I believed that I was inferior to some of my peers to my sisters, to, uh, to others, because I thought of myself less because of some lie. And even when God called me into ministry and I was like praying about a, uh, which seminary to go to, I chose the easier seminary. And God said no. And the only seminary that he allowed me to even apply to was one, the Gordon-Conwell Theological up in Boston area, and I want you to know that I felt completely unworthy. I didn't know, but I just knew their reputation. It was among the best theological schools in the country at that time. But God gave me one choice. Even though I didn't want to go to the cold, 
place. Uh, I applied. And let me tell you, I felt so unworthy that first year. Because my peers, I didn't know how academic they were, but they were invited to become an Ivy League. All my classmates were Stanford, Ivy League background, Columbia. I mean, my alma mater was not bad, but compared to my peers, all Ivy League. And I realized they weren't smarter than me. I was not less than them or greater than them, but I kept up. Which shows that, oh my gosh, and even one of, one of my first Bible study I taught in Cambridge were, were for, to students of MIT and Harvard, <laughs> PhD candidates and engineers. It was like, oh, I overprepared because I was like, these are some of the top. But I realized they weren't. We were all peers. They just studied harder than me when I was, anyways, but that's a, something else. <laughs> Here's my point. The lies that we believe can keep us down. The truth is Jesus paid the price, has made you a new creation. He has empowered you, enabled you, is indwelling in you, and he has called you to his position in the heavenly realms. And the only excuse you can make is of a lie that you believe that you are not perfect or you are not this and that, you're not righteous. And we justify to keep ourselves down. And I'm saying, if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are a new creation. Yeah. New creation. I get an amen from her. Yeah. What you believe about your identity matters. And the mission, what is the mission? What Jesus did, he caused us to continue. We can think of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, right? Going to all the, remember, the Great Commission is not go to the ends of the earth. The imperative commandment is as you go to the ends of the earth, make disciples. That's the commandment, the mission that God calls his disciples. Make disciples to follow all that I have taught you. Teaching them all to believe. And then Acts 2 was the beginning with the Holy Spirit coming upon the church, birthing the church, and the people enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak what God has brought to their attention. And I want you to know that the earth, early church was never about the building or an organization, but it's when the people of God just said yes to the Holy Spirit. In love, they gave what they had to those in need. In love, they embraced the lowly, the widows, and the widows were the socially rejected at that time. We are, I think, more compassionate and nicer to the widows today, we're the poor. But back then, they're socially oppressed. And the church recognized through love of Jesus, they did it organically, not because they were told what to do, but out of love. That's the mission. The mission of the church is to love. You are a representative of God's mission. I can say so much about that. I'm going to close. I, I, I just want to say that the church is the body of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the representation of Jesus Christ on the earth and to continue his mission. We are members of the body. 
We are called to love one another, not to amputate one another. Right? Love one another. Where there is love, there is forgiveness. There is grace. And as we do so, as we extend the grace, maybe sometimes they don't deserve it, I assure you we would be stronger, better, if we abide by the organic mode of the church rather than organizational methods. And that's the church. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Blessing Place Wesley Chapel. We hope you feel honored, empowered, and full of faith because of what you hear. And we would love to see you at our gathering soon. For more resources like this, head to trpfamily.org.